the most tragic thing that could happen in this election cycle is not who does or does not get elected. The most tragic thing would be that Christians lose their credibility and their witness because of politics. Hey, good morning, Cross United. I'm so glad you've joined us for this online message. We're going to be in John 11, 47 through 53. So if you have your Bibles, your app, you can turn or tap over to John 11, 47 through 53. You know, in uh, the fall of 2017, God called me to plant this new church in South Florida. And as we began to wrestle with what that meant, uh, we started having fundraising meetings. We started trying to, you know, engage people who might want to be a part of the team and the core team to get things off the ground for the church. And another important part of what we did is something some some sometimes call visioneering, where we really just sat with scripture and thought about um, how the non-changing mission of God and the, the command of Jesus to make disciples, how that meets with the specific context and the, the place and the time where God has called us to be in in you know the 20 late 2010s and early 2020s in our little corner of South Florida. And the way we we started to say this is that we exist to help people find life like God intended by bringing people to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ and by bringing people together in authentic community and by sending people out in the joyful mission that God has for them in the world. And we believe when those three things, wholehearted worship, authentic community and joyful mission, when those things meet up in the life of a person, they begin to experience the eternal good fullness of life that they will ultimately have in the presence of God in Christ for eternity. And so we, we exist to help people find that life like God has intended them to live. And, and our passion, our passion for this vision, and that ultimately will, will lead and cast glory upon the triune God, our passion for this vision provokes us to be very zealous to guard that vision because we care about the glory of God that we believe will, will, will rise to the glory of God as this vision is accomplished. And, and so we, we work really hard to keep the vision clear and the vision central uh, in the life of our church. And sometimes you probably maybe even be sick of, of the little video uh, that we put together about life like God intended. And we show that we put it as a bumper on the front of the sermon. Sometimes we, we believe this vision is so important because we are passionate for the glory of God. And God is glorified when people find life like he intended, united in wholehearted worship, authentic community and joyful mission. And, and so our, uh, my passion to guard this vision for the, glory, for the sake of the glory of God leads me to be very careful to expose things that might cloud our vision. And we could talk about any number of ways this vision could get clouded, where we could get sidetracked, where the lens could get blurry or foggy. Um, but I think one way that that happens in the church at large in our specific moment, especially at this time in our culture, is through politics. Um, and so, so and, and I think that <clears throat> partisan politics can, can sort of um, 
captivate, not sort of, can absolutely captivate the church. Centuries ago, Martin Luther talked about the Babylonian captivity of the church to, to the Roman magisterium and, and to the Pope. And today I worry there, there may be a captivity of the church to political ideology. I think too often political ideology captures, and, and, and I'm sp speaking specifically of our national cultural context. We are American, you know, Americans, you know, we're from all over, you know, and South Florida is a very diverse place and multi-ethnic and multinational, but we're here in America and we're engaging national American politics and local American politics. And I worry that national politics and partisanship and ideology um, has somehow and in some ways captivated and captured the church's witness. And so I think being a faithful Christian in our moment requires us to think about how Christian faith connects with politics in our place, in our time. And in and, and just God's perfect timing, you know, we're studying the, the gospel of John and, uh, and we're, we're studying the gospel of John in, in, in order. So we're, st we started in chapter one, verse one, and we're just going, you know, section by section, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We, we take, um, we pause at different points if, if we need to, but overall we're just going through the gospel of John and, and the next section that we were scheduled to study connects directly with this issue. And so I just really think in God's perfect timing, um, this is the time to talk about it, to talk about our place and our nation, power, politics, and the people of God. In, in John 11, 1 through 44, uh, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and he's raised Lazarus from the dead, and he's shown his purpose, his person, and his promise, and his, he's shown his power and his glory, and, and as, as he's done this, it, it provokes a mixed reaction. Look there at John eleven forty five. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus did, he did, believed in him. So they believe in Jesus because of his power that he's shown to raise this man, Lazarus, from the dead on the fourth day, the day where the corpse would have been already rotting and starting to stink, that, that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And many, it says many believed in him. Many believed in him. But many is in every. It's not everyone. Look at what it says in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So John contrasts here the many believers with these some who went and tattletailed and, and informed the religious leaders about what Jesus had done. And, and they, we don't know why they did this. Maybe they were motivated by fear, anger, jealousy, but they may have very well thought they were doing a religious uh, duty and they were being faithful Jews by reporting this action to the, the religious leaders. Um, they, they were passionate 
Um, they, they knew that God was passionate for the, for his, his glory and that God calls himself a jealous God, for example, in Exodus 24, 14, and says he's jealous for his glory and for his name. And, and so they, they may have been jealous for the glory of God and worried that Jesus was going to threaten it. Um, and so they go and tell the chief priests and the Pharisees, and we see there in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do with since this man is doing many signs, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the Sanhedrin, Luke in Acts 5.21, says that this was the full council of the Israelites. Historically, we know is probably 71 of the uh, elite religious and political leaders in Jewish life of that day presided over by the high priest and, and uh, biblical scholar D.A. Carson says this was like all three branches of government in one. It was a legislative body, a judiciary and an executive branch all in this one room. And so, so this was the political and religious power center of Jewish life. Now, what we have to understand is that this religious and political power center was authorized and allowed by the nation or the, the empire, I should say, of Rome. And the, so, so Rome has allowed the Jewish people to have this measure of political and religious autonomy. And so the Sanhedrin meets and they convene and they discuss Jesus's claims, what Jesus has said. They discuss Jesus's actions, what Jesus has done. And, and they, they realize that leaving the Jesus issue, we could say, to the, the sort of ad hoc, um, haphazard whims of these randomly assembled crowds was not solving the problem. Jesus continues to do things and he continues to say things that are making people marvel. And, and they, they, if he continue, they, they're, they're, they're concerned that if this continues, that he is going to capture the hearts and the minds of everyone in the nation. Now, obviously that's hyperbolic, but, but he is going to be so well-known, so popular, so trusted, so adored, so astounding to everyone that they won't be able to persuade people not to follow him. And so something has to be done. They, they, they don't consider for a moment that maybe they all should believe in him. Um, they, they refuse to consider that, 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 that would be an option. And, and, what, what, what they see here is a threat to their very tenuous, fragile hold on religious and political power in the land of Palestine, the promised land that God had promised to the people of God through Abraham. They say the Romans will come and they'll take away our place and our nation. And, and here, their religious concerns collide with their political concerns. They're concerned for the religious faith of the people, but even more, we're going to see, they're concerned about their political hold on power and identity as a nation and a place, a place that is 
that, 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 that is somewhere and a nation that is somewhere with a someone, a, a group of, of people who are, who are uh, united together. And, and, and they, they're, they're worried here that Jesus is going to threaten that. And here these concerns collide with our moment. They collide with our moment because 2020 America is a nation that has been for half of a year now fearing a plague and plagued by fear and stewing in this bubbling mess of political, uh, this, this political hatred and, and spiteful uh, um, rhetoric and the, the Republicans and the Democrats both attempting to grab a hold and keep a hold of political power. And, and people are s- separating into camps and saying that they're on this team and that team and wearing red jerseys or blue jerseys. Um, and these, these things are colliding in our moment as the election looms just weeks away in the early part of November. And, and it collides with us because in a, in a bigger sense, people are incurably religious and incurably political. We cannot avoid being religious. We are wired to seek after God and we can't avoid being political. God has designed us to organize our human lives in society um, and to have some sort of thing that, that organizes and governs the way we live together. These are things God has put into our DNA as people. We are both incurably religious and incurably political, but because of sin, we tend to kind of mush these things together so that religious and political become so mixed up that we actually reduce one to the other. So that politics becomes religion and religion becomes about politics. And, and so I think if we, when we look at this passage, we're going to, we're going to find some help for navigating these choppy waters. This passage kind of shows us the quote unquote, the sausage being made politically here as the Sanhedrin discussed, deliberated and decided about what to do with Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to hear from this passage um, and, and then we're going to connect it to some other relevant passages, and we're going to spend a, a little bit of time here. We're going we're gonna to talk about it this week, and then we're going to spend a couple more weeks in this mini-series called Our Place in Our Nation, Power, Politics, and the People of God, because I think it's very critical for our witness and our vision and our purpose and ultimately for the glory of God in our moment. So look at the first thing here. We see three important words, three important words there in verse Uh, 48. Romans, place, and nation. They say that um, if this continues, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the first word here is Romans. Um, The the Romans were the most powerful empire that had existed in, up until that point in human history. And in 67 AD, what would have been about 100 years before um, Jesus's earthly ministry, the general, Roman general Pompey had, had gone into Judea, into the land of Israel, and had conquered it. And, and um, Israel had been under Roman authority um, ever since. And, and there were some who tried to navigate this by 
sort of placating Rome and 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 Rome allowed them to have this measure of religious and political autonomy. There were other zealots who were all for toppling Rome. And um, and, and what what this council, this council um, is made up of people who are already in political power and Roman authority has allowed them this measure of political power. And so they have this vested interest in keeping the peace and keeping um, things so that Rome would allow them to continue in the power that they were exercising. Um, this was a fragile peace, and it was it was a form of freedom, but without the true power of being free. And if the people, if the people of Israel were were whipped up into a religious and political frenzy over this man Jesus, Rome would be threatened and would remove the political and religious autonomy. The, the, even if it was a, a just a measure of that, and the people who were in power would be deposed from power. So the Romans was was this this imperial authority. Secondly, the place. Well, what does he mean? They'll take away our place and our nation. Well, the place is referring generally to the promised land, but more specifically to Jerusalem and to the temple. Um. The, the, the Jews had a memory that was stamped by centuries and, and millennia. Um, for 500 years, they had waited for a glorious temple like Solomon had built. They, they built a, a new temple after the, uh, Babylon had toppled their temple in 586 BC, and then they built a new temple, but it was nothing in comparison. The, the scripture says that people who had seen both temples wept in in sorrow over the new temple because it was just nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. And then finally, this guy Herod comes into the picture and Herod builds a monumental decades long project to to restore the Temple Mount to the glory that it had before. And in fact, it, the, 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 the nation didn't have the, the glory it had under Solomon a thousand years before, but at least they, they thought the temple, the temple was something to sing about. The temple was something worth uh, being grateful to the Lord for. And there's a, there's a part in the gospels where the disciples are just like, Lord, look at these marvelous stones and buildings. The, the temple was, was a glorious jewel on the top of Zion in Jerusalem. And they were worried. The Sanhedrin was worried that if Jesus got the hearts of the people, the temple would be toppled. Third, they fear for the nation. Um, this is the, the, the Greek word ethnos, um, where we get the word ethnic. Um, it's the same word where Jesus commands us in the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. Um, John uses this term five times in his gospel narrative through 21 chapters. Four of them are in these few verses. Um, An ethnos is a people identified by a common place and by common practices. So the nation of Israel is the people of Israel centered in the, the land of Israel, most specifically centered around Jerusalem and the crowning jewel of Jerusalem, this temple on the mountain. And, and these priests and Pharisees, that the place and the nation will be threatened and they will fall into disfavor with Rome if Jesus 
gains the hearts of the people and they'll lose everything. They didn't have the great kingdom that David and Solomon had had, but at least they had something. They had some form of their old way of life and of their own autonomous religious practices and their own political power. This leadership has community committee has concluded um, that if we let Jesus go on, uh, we're going to lose it all. We see here that the leader, uh, this this man Caiaphas, is a ruthless politician. Jesus had to be stopped. One of them, verse forty nine, Caiaphas, who was a high priest, who was high priest that year, said to them, "You know nothing at all." You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas was the high priest. Um, now, now, what you need to understand about the high priest in that day was not just a religious office, but Rome had the authority to appoint and to depose high priests. Um Rome could depose, one, one scholar says, Rome could depose priests at will, and only a high priest who cooperated well with Rome could rule so long. Caiaphas was wealthy, he was well-educated, he was trained in Greek, not just Hebrew, he was, he was an intellectual and political elite. And he was masterful and ruthless at maneuvering the politics of being high priest in the place and the nation under Roman authority. Craig Keener says he had much at stake personally in keeping the peace. He would have been schooled in something that Greek philosophers called expediency, what we might call being practical or pragmatic. For, for Caiaphas, the solution is simple. The solution is simple. One man versus the entire nation. It's, it's a political calculation. Now, he may have couched it in religious terms because um, someone who blasphemed the name of the Lord, we see in Deuteronomy 24, excuse me, uh, Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 13, someone who blasphemed the name of the Lord would have been liable for execution. But it doesn't seem like this is what Caiaphas is really concerned about. It. He seems to be calculating things politi politically. A single person, you put the scales, a single man could not outweigh the nation. As he says this, he pronounces, he uh, speaks out a, a surprising prophecy. He did not say this on his own. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. John eleven fifty one, and 52. Yes, this man would die for the nation, but more than Caiaphas could have even realized. He prophesied a theological truth, though he was using a political calculation. The, the, the Hebrew poets and prophets had, had for centuries 
promised that God would not merely save the nation, singular, but would save the nations, plural. He would save the peoples of the world. Psalm 67, let the nations be glad. What John, the narrator here, does is he contrasts the, the political power plane of these Jewish leaders with Jesus's purpose as the Prince of Peace. And what he does is he, he does something very subtle, which is really beautiful. In the original Greek, um, in, in verse uh, 47, when it says that they gathered or convened the Sanhedrin, that's the, the, the Greek word synago. Um, and here again, um, in verse 52, he says that Jesus died not for the nation only, but to unite or gather or sunago the scattered children of God. Now, that word sunago would uh, be where the word synagogue came from, a gathering place. And there's just this hint here. There's this hint here that the synagogues, which would have been the, the houses of worship throughout the Roman world of the Jews who had been dispersed and couldn't uh, get to the temple because of how far away it was and how far away they lived, and they would go to synagogue. Well, what John is 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 implying here is that this true synagogue, the true gathering of the people of God, is the multi-ethnic, global, international people of God drawn from all nations. In other words, the church. That, that Jesus's purpose, Jesus's purpose is to bring the nations into his kingdom. Jesus's purpose is to bring sheep, he says in John 10, 16, who are not of this fold. Jesus's purpose, John 17, 20, 21, 22, and 23, that they may be one as the Father and the Son are one. This is Jesus's purpose a multi-ethnic, global, multinational kingdom, a church. Um, these leaders think in terms of the nation. They think nationalistically. They think politically. But God's purpose, God's purpose is spiritual, religious, and ecclesial. It has to do with the church. The church is at the, the heart of the purposes of of God. If you can think of it this way, Christians have more in common with, a, with another Christian from Iran or Nigeria than they do with someone who is not a Christian but's a blood relative and has exactly the same political beliefs. Jesus came to convene, to unite, to gather together the scattered children of God. The council reaches a final decision here in verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. This is how power playing politics always ends up treating Jesus, rejecting him and seeking to put him to death, whether literally here or figuratively in, in these authoritarian regimes that reject scripture and reject the, the, the name of Jesus from, from the lives and the lips of the people. What they couldn't have realized was the irony of their decision. They couldn't know what their decision actually led to. But John knew and John's readers knew because 
40 years after this, nearly 40 years after this council, the Jews revolted against Rome in a series of revolts um, that ended up in AD 70, leading to the destruction of Herod's great temple. It had taken almost five decades. It had taken decades and decades to build, and it stood for for not not even um, not even a hundred years. It, it toppled in AD seventy, and John wrote this biographical portrait of Jesus after that had happened. And his readers would have read this or heard this, knowing what had happened to the temple. And then several years after that, sixty years after that, in fact. There was a final revolt of the Jewish people against Rome, and Rome put down that revolt, and they did lose their place and their nation. They tried to keep their place and their nation, and they thought sacrificing Jesus would protect them, but in fact, the opposite happened. In this passage, I think we find something about a parable of our own relationship to power and politics as the people of God. And I, I want to spend the next couple of weeks in a mini-series talking about this, because I think it's so critical for us as Christians in our moment. And I want to give you three reasons why you should stick with me in this. First, we need to wrestle with this because Scripture calls us to. In God's perfect timing, here we are in John eleven forty five through fifty three, seeing this this um, unfolding of this this political religious council and what what happens when you put political calculations ahead of religious theological ones. God's perfect timing has led us to this passage six weeks or less before one of the most contentious elections in American history. And I don't think that's an accident. I think Christians have too often been taken captive by political power and have often traded their prophetic and creative witness for a pot of political porridge. I think scripture calls us to wrestle with this. How should Christians engage politics this is something we, we need to deal with. The, the word civics comes from the Latin word civis, C-I-V-I-S, and the word politics from, comes from the Greek word polis, and both of those words mean city. We, we see in the scripture that we are dual citizens. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, first and foremost, while we are also citizens of our earthly nation. How can we, as dual citizens or city people from the kingdom of God and also part of a, an earthly nation, how can we be faithful in our role? So the first reason we need to deal with this is because Scripture calls us to. The second reason is because of that season that we're in. We are in a season of political contention. And a tra the most tragic thing, hear me, the most tragic thing that could happen 
in this election cycle is not who does or does not get elected. The most tragic thing would be that Christians lose their credibility and their witness because of politics. Now, the third reason we need to engage this is for the sake of the Savior. For the sake of the Savior. It's because of Scripture, the season we're in, and for the sake of the Savior. Jesus says in Matthew 22, 21, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In other words, saying, okay, well, then we just won't deal with politics. We'll just avoid it. Well, that's not being faithful either. We are irreducibly and incurably both religious, spiritual, and political. And Jesus calls us not to avoid politics, but to faithfully engage politics. Jesus calls us to understand the role that politics play as citizens, city people, or we could say politicians of a transcending kingdom ruled by a transcendent king. We too easily reverse this because we give to God what is Caesar's and to Caesar what is God's. In other words, we turn religion into politics and we turn politics into religion. We turn faith into a way to engage politics and we turn politics into something that becomes almost like central to our own faith. In a culture blinded to the transcendent glory of God, I want to invite you to learn again with me, and let's learn together how to faithfully witness to a kingdom that is not of this world. We don't serve political power as a master. We don't seek political intrigue for entertainment, and we don't refuse political engagement or, or, or treat politically different people as our enemies. We engage as Christians for the glory of God so that people might find life like God intended as they're brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ, as they're brought together in authentic community, and as they and we live out in the joyful mission that God has for us in the world. God designed us for life, an abundant life with him and with one another. But there's a problem. Someone has taken our life. Jesus said the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. We're missing out on life like God intended because we go looking for life in all the wrong places. But there is a solution to this problem. Jesus said he came so that we may have life and have it in abundance. That's why Cross United Church exists, to help people find life like God intended. We believe life like God intended happens when three things are united in our lives. When we're brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ. When we're brought together in authentic community. When we're deployed on the joyful mission that God has for us in the world, we experience fullness of life. Life like God intended, united in wholehearted worship, authentic community, and joyful mission is why Cross United Church exists.